draw your attention to a project that Sheldon Pollock has been working on for over a decade now. It is called Sanskrit Knowledge Systems on the Eve of Colonialism, SKSEC for short. This is Pollock's short form, not mine. But this is an international collaborative project that has more than 10 scholars from all over the world working on it. And together, they have published more than 72 articles across a variety of journals. Now, this is just a snapshot of their website and a list of their published articles. Now, I have tried to read most of those articles which are available online, approximately 30, in order to understand their line of thought. And let me tell you that this is an ambitious undertaking. What it aspires to do is to trace the intellectual history of pre-modern India across intellectual disciplines in order to gather a clearer picture of the professed death of Sanskrit in the face of European modernity. In Pollock's words, Britain's consolidation of political power in much of the subcontinent at the end of the 18th century is a historical fact. And it is also a historical fact that Britain thereupon set out to colonize Indian minds, no less than Indian space, thereby producing an epistemic rupture on the vastest possible scale, whereby Indian forms of thought of great antiquity and complexity was summarily disqualified. How we calibrate this mental colonization is largely contingent on how we calibrate Indian thinking before colonialism. Now, intellectual history in general is the study of ideas and intellectual patterns over time in relation to the social, political, institutional changes of their time. So in other words, what Pollock wants to do is to sketch the ebb and flow of ideas in pre-modern India in relation to the socio-political conditions of their time. Because in his words, we cannot know how colonialism changed South Asia if we do not know what there was to be changed. Superficially then, this project demonstrates a spirit of openness towards the multiplicity of possible answers to the complex questions it raises. Pollock, in fact, explicitly says that he only wants to open up a conversation on it. Yet, a closer reading shows that SKSEC works within a fixed framework of preconceived conjectures and conclusions, and to these I wish to draw the audience's attention. Firstly, it does not seem to be a strictly construed intellectual history that Pollock is committed to chart. It appears that he is simply enamored with the catchphrase Navya that was in vogue during the period under examination and merely wishes to understand what of the Navya movement was in fact Navya or new. For Pollock, this word Navya is a precious discovery. What he wants to do with it is to tune the Indian intellectual trajectory into perfect symphony with the European Renaissance. 
in other words, to equate Navya with rebirth or renaissance. Now, so this undertaking tries to identify those characteristics that define the European Renaissance, like subjectivity or individuality, a historical awareness, a renewed interest in the classical text, etc., in the Indian intellectual landscape. Moreover, it aims to attribute this general atmosphere of intellectual dynamism to the consolidation of Muslim rule in India. Furthermore, Pollock says that if Europe embraced or encouraged this renaissance, India largely repudiated the Navya impulse. A comparison between the two traditions will show how differently India and Europe reacted to similar conceptual changes and how after centuries of homomorphism, their intellectual histories diverged. It is rather clear then that SKSEC works on a few presumptions. That A, 17th century Indian intellectual tradition was characterized by certain peculiarities that were comparable to the European Renaissance. B, they proved completely powerless when faced with their European counterparts and the millennia old systems of thought were finally irrevocably replaced by the latter. C, an intimate relationship is deducible between Muslim rule and the avowed creative upsurge of 17th century Indian science. This is a shockingly mischievous endeavor and I wish to explore the perils of the same. In my present paper, I have examined Pollock's idea of the new in 17th century Indian knowledge systems, their colonial encounter, and the dubious inferences that they allude to. Let us look at each in its turn. So Sheldon Pollock starts from a questionable a priori that the two centuries just prior to the colonial encounter, about 1550 to 1750, witnessed an unprecedented intellectual flowering of intellectual life in India remarkably comparable to the European Renaissance. A significant number of the SKSEC's working papers are committed to finding some sort of novelty in 17th century Indian science. Let us then look at what they found out. I have made a list of six new characteristics that Pollock and his team claim defined 17th century Indian science. A, a sudden upsurge in writing, a newness of form, engagement across multidisciplinary pursuits, an acute sense of subjectivity or individuality, historical awareness, and vernacularization. Because I don't have the time to go through each of it in detail, what I will do is tell you in brief the claim that Pollock and co have made and the way in which I have tried to answer them, so it will give you a rough idea of what it is about. First, sudden upsurge in writing. One of the characteristic features of pre-modern Indian science, according to Pollock, is the explosion of scholarly production beginning in the 16th century. According to him, an extraordinary upsurge in writing, previously unmatched, occurred across intellectual disciplines in this period. He writes, consider hermeneutics and political theory. In the former, 
a burst of writing begins around 1550. In fact, that 100-year period is probably the most productive era in the history of hermeneutics since the 7th century. In political theory, beginning in 1575 or so, a range of often vast treatises were composed. For Pollock, this trend is no mere artifact of preservation. According to him, there is absolutely no proof to show that anything substantial was lost in the preceding periods. So what I have done is made a statistical analysis of all the available works through the centuries in order to counter Pollock's point. This is based on Carl H. Potter's Encyclopedia of Indian Knowledge Systems and approaches near accuracy. If proliferation of texts or their availability, discounting any loss of material is a measure of a knowledge system's status, can we safely conclude that Purvami Mamsa is at its zenith today? A newness of form and thought. So Pollock says that a significant innovation of style is observable in the works of this period. A new philosophical meta-language that is characterized by the excessive employment of the highly refined terminologies of Navdhyanyaya. This is not, he says, simply a trendy jargon, but a signifier of a newness in thought. So what I have done is trace again the development of Navyanyaya language, which was initiated by Gangesha in the 13th century. Gangesha Upadhyaya in Mithila uh, developed a technique of subtle argumentation in his magnum opus Tattva Chintamani. It was carried forward by Vardhamana and Yadnyapati Upadhyaya, Pakshadhara Mishra, among others. From Mithila, it traveled to Navya, uh, Navadvipa in Bengal, where Raghunatha Shiromani uh, wrote a commentary on the Tattva Chintamani. From then on, this became the default mode of discourse among scholars. So if 17th century Indian science saw the extraordinary usage of Navyanyaya language, I have shown that it is but a natural development of the seeds sown in the 13th century. To attribute to Persian interactions of the 16th century is a stretch of imagination not supported by a shred of proof. Moreover, Indian scholars themselves really criticize this period and say nothing new was really added to the knowledge systems in this period. One uh, scholar says, here we see at one and the same time scholasticism at its climax and true philosophy at its lowest depth. We might wade through volumes of controversial jargon without coming across a single flash of deep thought or, or real insight into the nature of things. Mere conventionalities and distinctions without a difference are the weapons in this wordy warfare with which one disputant tries to defend his thesis or vanquish a rival. It may be doubted if either the writer or the reader is made a wit the wiser by all this labor. According to Pollock, the new cross-cultural interactions that began from the beginning of the Mughal era were without parallel for the conceptual and social distances being bridged, especially between the, so uh, the Sanskrit and the Persian scholars at the Mughal court. Inseparable from this new social circumstances of the scholars, he says, was the presence of a striking new subjectivity in their literary works, he writes. Never before in Sanskrit literature had a writer constructed a self quite so vividly present as Siddhi Chandra does in his autobiography. 
The work itself, embedded in the biography of his teacher, almost objectifies the tension between a very old conception of heteronomy and a very new self-fashioning that the text treatises throughout. Jagannatha composed verses on the death of his wife that are unprecedented in earlier Sanskrit poetry, and his lyrics on a Yavana woman he named Lavangi are probably an appropriation of the Persian motif of the Mehboob, the ever unattainable beloved whose unattainability is typically exaggerated by the code of the otherness. Now, in every paper on this subject, Pollock has just these two examples to quote to substantiate his claim, that of Siddhi Chandra and Jagannatha Pandita. The said verse of Jagannathas on Lavangi that Pollock quotes occurs in his compendium of verses called Bhamini Vilasa. It is analyzed again by him in his Rasagangadhara. Basically, uh, Bhamini Vilasa appears to be a compendium of all the verses that were written as illustrations for the Rasagangadhara. Be that as it may, there is no real proof to, to say that these verses reflect Jagannatha's own life. The verse that Pollock says are the outpourings of a grief-stricken mind of Jagannatha's is analyzed by the same author in the Rasagangadhara in an attitude of clinical detachment. Jagannatha says, this beautifully sorrowful verse may have been written by someone absent from home, someone in love with his teacher's daughter, someone thinking back on a relationship, etc. Similarly, the other verse on the death of his wife occurs in his Karuna Vilasa and is again analyzed with the same detachment in his Rasagangadhara. This, puzzle, this puzzles Pollock himself. He writes, has he, Jagannatha, forgotten the terrible death of his beloved that prompted him to write the verse in the first place? It is not quite clear what we are to make of such discontinuities between Jagannatha's poetry and theory. Are we to assume that he, has that he is asking us not to think of these poems as expressions of his true self, or that he has actually forgotten that the verses on the death of his wife are verses on the death of his wife? None of these solutions is attractive when we're left with something of a puzzle. Most easily, this issue is resolved if the muktakas are not considered as reflections of his own life, but Pollock will not admit that because he will have to then give up his subjectivity in the 17th century Indian science otherwise. The other point that Pollock makes, another distinguishing feature of this period, he says, is a historical, perhaps even historicist, conceptual framework for understanding the development of knowledge systems. Again, with continued regularity, he has just one example to quote in all the papers on this subject, that of Mahadeva's Nyaya Kausthava. He says, the late 17th century Nyaya Kausthava organizes its exposition by referring to the ancients, the followers of the ancients, the moderns, the most up-to-date scholars, and the contemporaries. In it, the attempt was made to organize the totality of knowledge in a given discipline by determining the most significant positions that had been taken in the past and by sorting these chronologically and indicating where advancements had been made to produce a new synthesis. The mode of exposition in Mahadeva's treatise was thus dominantly historicist. It is unfair to decide from this evidence that prior to this period, Chronological thinking as such was never attested, or earlier knowledge was never described as earlier in scholarly discourse. I have used the models, the chronological models of Abhinavagupta and Vachaspati Mishra 
in order to counter Pollock's argument. I have especially relied on Vachaspati Mishra's classification of the followers of Prabhakara into Jarath Prabhakaras, that is ancients, the Navya Prabhakaras, etc. And this was a work in 960 CE, nowhere close to 17th century. In contrast to his own theories, Pollock writes, the new in 17th century India was intimately connected to re-establishing the old. This suggests to me a serious tension between the newness of the intellect constrained by an oldness of the will. According to Pollock, Europe embraced the newness that emerged and this resulted in its modernity or progress. On the other hand, India largely repudiated the Navya impulse and this eventually played the key role in Sanskrit's downfall. For a decade now, Pollock has been writing on the theme of Sanskrit's life and purported death. His narrative of Sanskrit's history is little more than a series of beginnings and endings. 1750, however, Pollock says, was to be the very death of Sanskrit. Pollock's framework in which a tradition-bound innovativeness proves powerless before a variant modernity is itself flawed. What he offers are two disproportionate worldviews, two opposing thought views. By dichotomizing in this fashion, the conclusion seems inevitable. One world must replace the other. The Sanskrit order must be supplanted by European colonialism. This is the, this is, uh, the same view that he adopts while talking about Sanskrit and the vernaculars also. He writes that the vernacular worlds replaced the world of Sanskrit discourse in the vernacular millennium. Such language makes it sound as if what went on was a mechanical substitution rather than a convergence of norms and practices. Dichotomized views of cultural encounters are misleading and unhelpful. Sanskrit pundits did experience a transformation in their familiar civic ethos, but experiencing a transformation in one's world is different from exchanging one's world for another. Can we not think of a future scholarly discourse or study of India titled The Life of Sanskrit? This is what I have done. I have traced the life of Sanskrit in colonial Bengal using the same example that Pollock uses to show the death of Sanskrit, Ishwara Chandra Vidyasagara's uh, example, but I don't think I have the time to go into the detail of it. Finally, what I want to say is that Pollock is committed with a scary fervor to his theory of an Indian Renaissance and its ultimate demise. Not surprisingly then, it is difficult for him to recognize the contours of a tradition committed to continuity. If fabrication, that is misrepresentation of data or information in formal academic exercise is academic dishonesty, then Sheldon Pollock in his zeal is guilty of several. Thank you. What are the shastras that this project focuses on? I mean, they're tracing this renaissance in. No, he, he talks about a variety of it. There's Mimamsa, there's Nyaya, there's Vyakarana, there's Rajya Shastra, there's Alankara Shastra. So this okay. renaissance covers all intellectual disciplines. And he says in everything, the Navya movement died yes, after. Yes, yes, There was a sudden upsurge because of the consolidation of Muslim rule. And okay. then because the British came in, this died, died. on the while. Okay. Does he talk about any uh, literature in the vernaculars? For example, in Canada, we have heard Navya, Navodaya, Sahityas. I don't know if they are there in other vernaculars, but does he talk about no, it at all? at all? 
he actually does not cover much ground in the vernaculars through this in this project he has a different book i'm sure you know language of the gods for that dedicated for that part sorry i'm a total amateur out here. i have no background out here sure. but anyway sure. so why why does this navya movement die die down and uh, uh get extinguished or whatever and and one more thing just this uh, you have these sanskrit knowledge systems on the eve of colonialism and how about a project like on the eve of uh, muslim invasions or something like that your thoughts on that yeah. so your first question uh how did the navya impulse die so basically what pollock is trying to say is that there was a tension okay there was an impulse for something new as in there was a movement that tried to take off but a very uh, the very ethos of india sort of was not open for change or open for a revolution of that sort or a renaissance of that sort so this tension between a uh, holding back rather and a uh, wanting to move forward there was this tension between the two and this tension itself sort of withered away as soon as it uh, encountered the colonial because it was not really defined so far there was still uh, a movement forward constrained by a backward looking also so this is how it died on the vine according to uh, pollock the second question uh, i forgot i'm sorry uh, right so on the eve of colonialism right so he is talking about um he is focused on what happened when colonialism entered india that is the focus of the entire project so uh he starts from the a priori that we know something changed so we want to understand what changed so let us look simply look back at those two centuries just before colonialism entered india so he says that these two centuries uh were dominated by the muslim the cross cultural interactions between sanskrit and persianate uh intellectuals yeah please is a rupture when colonialism happens is there a similar sort of a rupture in uh, the the extent of thinking and the extent the, the output of sanskrit knowledge uh, when the muslims uh, invasions happen does it increase or decrease yes so uh the uh, production of sanskrit work increases when as soon as mughal empire is consolidated but it is a little new as in it is it uh tries to uh leave off traditional values or try to adopt uh persianate values etc but as soon as colonial uh, uh the colonial entry happens this is left to itself so that's thank you